Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. This is CNN Tonight. And look, we've got some pretty big news to take apart. I mean, there's a lot of news coming out, and it might feel a little incremental at times, the drip, drip of different information coming from DOJ, a subpoena here, a subpoena there. Which investigation? Well, look, the drip, drip is now raining down all over Trump world. I'm talking about more than 30 issued by the DOJ just in recent days, 30 of them, in the investigation into the attack on January 6th. Now, the question is, who has been ensnared by all this and really what it could ultimately mean for Donald Trump and really our nation next? We'll talk more about that in just a few moments. But you can't lose the irony here, the idea that we've been talking a lot about January 6th, about the election-related lies, about the idea of how the U.S. democracy is in peril because there was not this expectation that was met of a peaceful transition of power. And then you've got this idea of over across the pond, as they say, the fact that, as they say, no king ever dies, that once somebody has passed in the monarchy, the next person is able to take up that position immediately. And it's 2 a.m. in Scotland right now. And you're looking at this unfold as live pictures are coming in at the scenes of the very public payment of respects. That's the late Queen Elizabeth, whose coffin now lies at rest at St. Giles Cathedral in the capital of Edinburgh. It'll be flown to London tomorrow ahead of her funeral, which is now one week from today. And frankly, it's been another very moving day. It will be many other moving days of emotional ceremonies and reflection about the longest reigning monarch there and in this very grand farewell that you're seeing. Now, the Crown of Scotland placed atop the Queen's coffin during a prayer service earlier. And especially moving was to see the Queen's four children, including the now King, King Charles III, that is, standing vigil around their mother's casket, mounting their guard, symbolically. And we also saw them all march and lockstep in a procession along that royal mile to the church when Her Majesty's coffin was moved there from her official Scottish home in Edinburgh. Throngs of people lining the streets get a chance to witness history and say goodbye. Now, this really has been and will continue to be a celebration of life, a commemoration of a beloved public servant, Britain's longest-serving monarch. But I also want to be clear that the idea of a monarch is not a universally loved concept. I mean, look at us here in the United States of America. We've defined ourselves as a nation by our rejection of the monarchy, our declaration of independence and our rejection from that centralized power. And as it is, the Queen's death has become more of a conversation, not only here, but all across the globe, that's broadened beyond her individual life. And there have been questions about whether there should even be a monarchy anymore. Some see it as a time to reevaluate what the future should actually hold and really answer the question of, well, can or maybe should the Commonwealth survive the death of a queen? Now, the global reaction, it's been interesting. 
If you're following along online or seeing what's happening, I mean, it is quite mixed and it ranges on a big spectrum. King Charles is now the monarch of 14 of the 56 Commonwealth countries, which are mostly British colonies. The prime minister of Antigua and Barbuda, excuse me, said the Caribbean country will hold a referendum in the next few years on whether to become a republic and remove King Charles as their head of state. Remember, Barbados severed its final imperial links to Britain just last year by, well, declaring itself a republic. Now, there are major debates in other parts of the Caribbean about the monarchy's continued role in countries like the Bahamas, like Belize, like Jamaica as well, along with conversations about the impact of British colonialism, which the history, let's just call it fraught, shall we? Now, among those who have strongly questioned the merits of a monarchy in the UK, surprisingly, if the tapes are right, and they are, is Britain's own new prime minister, Liz Truss. But not recently. Back when she was a teenager, back in 1994, at a Liberal Democrats conference. Watch this. We do not believe that people should be born to rule or that they should put up and shut up about decisions that affect their everyday lives. We met another group of people, and another group of people, and all three groups of people said, abolish the monarchy. In that conference, we couldn't find a single monarchist outside the royal pavilion. How ironic. How ironic indeed, because she's now a conservative who met the Queen two days before her death, and is seen in the last public photos with her. Joining me now is CNN Royal Historian Kate Williams, also Niall Stanich, Associate Editor and White House columnist at The Hill, and Harvard History Professor Maya Jasanoff, author of three books on the British Empire. Great to have all of you here today and really contextualize this conversation further, because as I alluded to, and frankly outright stated, There is a lot of pomp and and pageantry that's happening right now. And this is the longest reigning monarch. And she and her power and her force and, of course, her intellect and how she was revered is undeniable. There's also a broader conversation happening right now about what will be next. Where will the monarchy go from here? Will it remain intact in the way it is? Let me get with you here, Kate, on this issue, because I wonder from your perspective of just the way that there has been transition. Obviously, the 70-year-plus monarch and the way that she has um, been in that position. Are there real conversations happening for the first time about the true future and the reception of the monarchy? Yes, Laura, I think that's a fair point to make. There has been this, as you say, incredible reign, 70 years on the throne. The Queen was born just after World War One. And, you know, she was born, women didn't even all have the vote, has seen so much of the 20th century in the beginning of the 21st. And yet her reign also saw the great, uh, the great horrors of, uh, the great horrors of, 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 of empire still continuing. We have to, not that, you know, even in, ni- in, the 19th, in the early parts of her reign, countries were fighting for independence, such as Kenya, who became independent in 1963. And there are these big conversations going on about the questions you're raising in your introduction about whether or not 
Britain will still have other be head of state of other countries, the British monarch. And as you said, Antigua is looking into it, Australia, Jamaica, um, New Zealand. The Prime Minister has just said that she expects New Zealand to become a republic in her lifetime. I do think Jamaica probably will go quite quickly as well. And I think it will be a domino effect. I think country after country, let's remember that quite recently an Australian female politician said she wasn't going to swear allegiance to the Queen because of um, the suffering of indigenous people. And so uh, King Charles, as he is now, King Charles has on his plate really, I think, the transition that, uh, of Britain. And certainly a lot of these countries said they weren't going to do anything while the Queen was around. Now the Queen is no longer with us. Uh, under Charles, I think they will look into the question of becoming republics. Now, for some of them, it's quite constitutionally difficult, but I do think the political will is there and also the public will as well. Now, let me go to that idea of the public will and political will. I mean, Scotland, I mean, the, the Scotland's um, first minister says the country stands ready, that was his word, stands ready to support King Charles III, um, but they had previously pushed and pledged for independence. And I'm wondering, and that it was a referendum, by the way, um, there's going to be a vote held, I think, in October of next year. Is there a likelihood that Scotland might have independence and move towards it? It's certainly likely. The main party that is advocating that, the Scottish National Party, is the primary party in Scotland right now. But the broader picture here, Laura, is that this is a very disunited kingdom. As you say, the Scots did have a referendum in 2014. That was uh, defeated. The pro-union side won that, but it didn't quell the desire for independence. And in my own uh, native Northern Ireland, Sinn Féin, the party that would hope to remove Northern Ireland from the United Kingdom entirely and create a, a united Ireland, became the largest party in the Northern Ireland uh, Assembly back in May. So there is clearly a groundswell. These, of course, are very, very old issues. We don't have time here to rehearse the whole uh, vexing history of England and Ireland or the mm. fact that I think in God Save, God Save the King, we should say now, there's a verse that no one sings anymore about uh, rebellious Scots to crush, I think is, is the line. That whole friction has been present for centuries. Yeah. I mean, and thinking about that, and Maya, I want to bring you in here because you, you, you wrote eloquently in a piece about this very issue in an op-ed, and, and I believe your, your phrase was to mourn the queen, but not the empire. And this is a, uh, not her empire. This is a, a, a phrase I'm hearing all over now. I mean, it's trending on social media, the conversations that really delve into this conflicted notion. On the one hand, the celebration of a woman and for the reasons we've articulated, and then the idea of the ills of a monarchy. I mean, the United States in and of itself can't begin to pretend as though we have revered indefinitely universally the monarchs. We are United States for that reason. Hashtag the Tea Party. But I mean, the other one, not the most recent one, the original Boston Tea Party on these issues. Maya, let me ask you, um, how should the king handle the calls that are happening right now to try to contend with the past. There's calls for reparations, for apologies, for colonization. Where do you stand? Well, my feeling is that these conversations should have been happening already a while ago. And, you know, I've heard a lot of things uh, being said in recent days about, you know, now is not the time to bring up this or bring up that. I think for people in parts of the former British Empire, it's felt like time for a long time. I think and expect that King Charles will undertake 
uh, more uh, open sorts of discussions that he personally, of course, probably will not, but he will allow to have happen uh, discussions about the uh, the legacies of British imperialism, about the appropriate forms of apology or other kinds of redress that might come from from the monarchy uh, uh, and so on. I think that, uh, as as Kate already and Niall pointed out, the move uh, of the current uh, dominions to, to get rid of the monarch as head of state is going to accelerate. And I think this is really a great opportunity to educate the British public about what has happened in the last seven decades of Britain's global history and just bring the conversations that have long been going on in former colonies a little bit more in line with Britain's own understanding of what imperial history was, what its legacies are, and how to forge, hopefully, a good relationship going forward. You know, you mentioned that and I couldn't help but think uh, in my mind about the conversations we're having here stateside about how to contend with one's history, how it's taught, how it's contextualized, how to bring about the, the very obvious notions of what's happening. I wonder, Kate, is this the, have these conversations taken place before? I mean, to, to the point that Maya raised, they should be happening all along. H- have they been taking place and, and swept under a proverbial rug by virtue of the respect conferred to this queen? Well, I think what we've had certainly is a surge of uh, sort of uh, reassessment of the empire, particularly in the wake of the Black Lives Matter movement. People are, are reconsidering, but uh, in terms of slavery and slavery reparations and apologies, and I think that is really important. And I think that Britain is the, the, is coming to terms. But you know, very recently, very recently, one of our very foremost politicians was on a TV show and discussing the Boer War, and he was saying that the concentration camps that the British Army set up in the Boer War, where they put the Boer, Boer ladies and, and children, they were to help them. So we still have that being purported by, uh, you know, these, these, these kind of myths being purported. And I would also mention, Laura, that history, we, history is so important, the legacy of slavery and empire, but also in terms of how the dominions are looking at Britain, there were also more current issues as well, in the sense that there was a, 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 there's a huge scandal in Britain called the Windrush scandal, which yeah. was about when young people from Jamaica came over just after World War II to rebuild the country with their families, and they lived here all their lives, they felt they were citizens, and suddenly, uh, just in 2011, 2012, the government threw away all their landing cards, so they didn't have proof that they belonged here, and suddenly they were trying to deport them, said they had to, uh, you know, couldn't have benefits, and there was even a, a lady chef in the House of Lords, and they were trying to deport her. So this huge scandal treating people of Jamaican and Caribbean origin, these two impact on perceptions of what is our relationship when we were in the Caribbean to the British throne. And I think also there is a questioning, especially, I would say, since Brexit, of what leaving the European Union, what is the benefit of allying with Britain? Mm. There's an interesting yeah. survey was done by the House of Lords into the other the, the countries in the Caribbean and, and across the world want to ally with different countries, not Britain. They, the, we, are, we are not seen as a source of power anymore. So there are a lot mm. of big questions and to engage with. I'm so glad that you made it current as well. I'm thinking about especially the Windrush generation. I myself am married to a first-generation American whose family is from Jamaica, and I remember I'm, I'm Black American, and in my grandmother's home, it was a picture of like Martin Luther King, and you have a picture of of Jesus on the wall, and in his family, it was the Queen. And I remember thinking about the conversations that then ensued about the distinctions 
between what it's like to be of Caribbean descent and what it's like to be a black American. Um, and just the conversations parallel so often around issues of immigration in particular. So that's a really important point to, to raise. Kate Williams, Niall Stanich, Maya Jasnoff, thank you so much. Well, back here in the U.S., important developments in the DOJ's criminal probe into January 6th. What we're learning tonight about new grand jury subpoenas served to dozens of people with ties to former President Donald Trump. We're talking about that next. New science tonight, the DOJ's criminal probe into January 6th is intensifying. Sources telling CNN that the DOJ has subpoenaed more than 30 people within Trump's orbit in just recent days. That includes Trump's former campaign manager, Bill Stepien, his former deputy chief of staff, Dan Scavino, and even groups like Women for America First. What's more, the New York Times is reporting that federal agents armed with search warrants seized cell phones of two key Trump allies just last week. Boris Epstein and Mike Roman, both linked to Trump's alternate electors scheme. Here with me now to talk about all this is Miles Taylor, former chief of staff to Trump's Homeland Security Secretary, former assistant attorney general, Elliot Williams, and senior staff editor at the New York Times Opinion, David Swerdlick. I'm glad you're all here, looking very intense, but dapper nonetheless. But this is an intense time. We're talking about more than 30 subpoenas. I mean, every time you think you can look away from the discussions around Trump and the orbit, bam, here we are again. What does it say to you? Well, look, it's you know, uh, these are investigations around January 6th. But what does that even mean? Number one, you've got what happened on January 6th, the day, investigations into the violence uh, and the rioting that happened there. Number two, the fake elector scheme that led to January 6th. That's a whole separate set of crimes um, being investigated. Number three, uh, President, former President Trump's Save America PAC and possible campaign finance and wire fraud and mail fraud allegations there. So what was just, quote unquote, January 6th is now almost a web of different crimes being investigated separately. This is a very far reaching investigation. And when people say that this is the biggest one the Justice Department's ever been a part of, well, well, yeah, that's what's happening here. Including the attorney general. I mean, Merrick Garland said this is the most significant case in the Justice Department's history. And I think right now there are shutters going through Donald Trump's orbit and, and people who haven't been subpoenaed are, are worried. I kind of feel like from here on set, we can hear the sound of phones being thrown into the Potomac <laughs> River right now because people are worried uh, about this. But, but we've said all along that Merrick Garland was going to work his way up the pyramid. He's doing exactly what he did. He came under you know, withering pressure from social media mobs for not doing enough quickly. Uh, but, but this is what they're doing. They prosecuted the low-level offenders tied to the insurrection, and they're working their way up to the very top. Uh, you know, look, I, I think at this point, for folks in, in Trump world who use the Game of Thrones metaphors, they like to create memes with Trump. Um, right now, that meme would say justice is coming. And they really felt that, uh, you know, hit the airwaves tonight when they heard that you're, news. You were really I know. proud of that, that was, I know. I was ready. It was yeah. like was winter like, is coming. You uh, built it up. It was really it's great. Like, yeah, uh, the only, the only thing I would it. add is the, a lot of the people who watch Game of Thrones also should have watched The Wire. They would have seen how Ooh. law enforcement rolls up people. Another HBO show. And in there. the next segment, yeah. we will do a right, review no, of no, The Wire. Yeah. Do you, do you have is, an analogy you want to raise now? Uh, I would say know, Golden Girls. That won't work here for no, some reason. Right, we're, just, we're going through HBO shows. Do I need to do Insecure? <laughs> okay, no, <laughs> no, <not yet. laughs> quick, quick point, Laura. What, what um, this, 
this, the events between Election Day 2020 and January 6, 2021 were like a jigsaw puzzle. Mm. And now between the work of the January 6th committee and between the work of the Justice Department, which a lot of people thought was just sort of hanging back, and it turns out, no, they've been building the case, as you said, pieces on a jigsaw puzzle are being put together. We don't know if that means that the speech on the ellipse or that the events at the Capitol or what happened in all of these uh, various states are connected, what crimes were committed, but a picture is starting to emerge and the Justice Department is putting it together. That is what I take away well, from the, these. Well, the thing stories. about a, a jigsaw puzzle, too, is that, you know, you can see the visible cracks, right? You can see the way this has actually been put together. And part of that is involved with the Mar-a-Lago matter, the idea of the special master, the, the search warrant, the affidavit, and all the different notions. We are seeing in real time a lot of things happening. And in fact, I mean, as you know, the DOJ has responded to the idea of a special master. Last week when we were talking about this, they had uh, about four people on their list of who yeah. they wanted to have, two from Trump's side, two from their side. Where are we? Okay, so um, the Justice Department today issued a filing saying that one of the two Trump uh, folks that Trump's folks have put forward, they could actually support. Judge Raymond J. Deary uh, from the Eastern District of New York, who's as close to a consensus pick mm. um, for special master as could be, sort of respected on all sides, and also has background. He was a former judge of the Foreign Intelligence uh, Surveillance Court. So probably um, has so clearance. Clear and yeah. ca- right. has clearance and experience in dealing with these matters. Um, one of the picks that the Trump folks had put forward was almost a non-starter. His wife is on the court that's ultimately going to get this. It was a clear conflict of interest. So uh, the judge just has to rule on it. Um, but, but both parties are in agreement that it should be Judge Jury. So I guess if, if she's going to have a special master, it ought to be him. Is it easy to have, I mean, if this person is going to be reviewing everything and some things are going to have to have help at some point, is it e- easy to try to get these clearances? And I mean, how long are we talking about this process that might last? Well, look, it's going to be at the discretion of the executive branch. It could happen quickly. But, Laura, you you point to something here that's really significant, which is that this information has already gotten into hands that it wasn't supposed to get in the hands of. I mean, by just by taking these documents to his private residence, Trump has forced agents and prosecutors and soon potentially judges and special masters and a whole cast of characters to have access to materials that, according to public Mm. reporting, in some cases was only known by a tiny handful of cabinet secretaries and maybe a few others. So that's it. That, you know, the documents, without knowing whether they've leaked to foreign intelligence agencies, are already in hands they shouldn't have. Another thing to note here is right now, this whole negotiation in front of the judge is about whether the Justice Department and the intelligence community can continue their review on the sensitivity of these documents in general. So right now they're having to sit on their hands and not be able to look into what the intelligence community blowback is. That might mean that sensitive intelligence sources around the world are at risk. There could be a whole range of national security damages they haven't been able to investigate yet. It obliterates the need-to-know basis, right? That old saying, need-to-know, that's gone. Yeah, Trump's lawyers made the argument in this latest round saying that the government hasn't proved that all these documents are classified or the documents they want to look at are classified. But that logic is completely backward, to your point. These documents belong to the United States of America, to the people of the United States of America. We're not talking about a commemorative mug from Trump meeting Putin in Helsinki, right? Okay. And so the logic, the onus should be on President Trump to prove why he had them, why he kept them, why he didn't give them back 
when the National Archives are closed. Everyone, David wants my newest CNN mug. That's what's going on right I now. I do. He was, he was, that was a little bit of shade. <laughs> you didn't realize. Miles Taylor, David Swirlick, thank you. Elliot, stick around. Please, we have more to talk about. And still ahead, there is great backlash against the Supreme Court since the fall of Roe v. Wade. Well, now it's Chief Justice defending the legitimacy of the court ahead of its brand new term. Plus, new remarks tonight from Justice Kagan on the subject. Next. Supreme Court Justice Elena Kagan just weighed in on the plummeting perception of the Supreme Court, saying, quote, I think judges create legitimacy problems for themselves. If one judge dies or leaves a court and another judge comes in and all of a sudden the law changes on you, what does that say? You know, that just doesn't seem a lot like law. Joining me now, Stan Legal Analyst and Supreme Court biographer Joan Biskupic. Joan, I wonder what she's referencing. It doesn't <laughs> sound hypothetical at all. 19, uh, in 2020, one justice right. died, Ruth Bader Ginsburg. Another justice came on. And what did we get? The end of Roe v. Wade completely. And only because of that change in justices. So, you know, there was Elena Kagan tonight in New York repeating what she had said earlier this summer about how when the justices suddenly switch gears on the law because of a change of personnel, what does that do to public confidence in the court and to the court's legitimacy? And it's coming, of course, after you already have a political process by how you actually have a Supreme Court, you know, confirmed. That's a very political feeling thing. There's already mistrust issues. This adds to the idea of what's it all about. Completely does. And this is this is her theme. But get this, Laura. They disagree not just on cases, but they disagree on why people are questioning the court's legitimacy. Just last weekend in Colorado Springs, the chief justice said people shouldn't question the legitimacy of the court. It's just that they're disagreeing with the rulings. Mm. He sort of is sidestepping this whole argument saying we, are, we don't have a crisis of integrity here. We don't have a crisis of legitimacy. We only have people disagreeing with our opinions. But what he's ignoring is the fact that what people are seeing is a very politically motivated majority, a supermajority, plowing through all sorts of norms, rolling back a half century of abortion rights, and also changing gun rights, changing regulatory authority, doing all those things based on patterns that arise from their partisan roots. So what Elena Kagan is saying is that when you appear that way, when you're, do, when you're acting not like a court, not like you're relying on the law, but that you're relying on politics, that's necessarily going to mm. undercut the integrity of the court. And the, ju- the chief is saying, well, that's not exactly what's happening here, well, even though we know he... Right. I <laughs> we know say, that's how he thinks. I mean, on that point, and you've read about this extensively, Joan, the idea, he's not a, he's not a silly man. He's, no, not, he's no. not ignorant to the fact that there is no. public perception, and perception is king um, in some respects. The question, though, is... I mean, yes, we have political grievances as part of our political discussions all the time. Should the Supreme Court, though, cater to the perception? That's the real question. They have a new term coming up where, look, they've got a whole host of issues to tackle. If people believe they're political and they try hard not to be perceived that way, aren't they catering? Well, wait a minute, though. That's not really catering to public perceptions. There's a whole other first step of how are they going to decide cases? Are they going to rely on precedent? Are they going to give honest rationales that people can believe in? Are they going to vote in ways that do not appear to be uh, pushing boundaries, becoming more activist? And that's the issue. It's not so much, it's, it's not catering to the public, I don't think. I mean, obviously you have to 
they, many of the justices over time have taken into consideration public perceptions, but that's not exactly what's happening here. It's the idea of public confidence. Mm-hmm. And what polls have shown is that people believe that the justices are now voting based on their politics, not on their ideology necessarily, and not on what the law says, but based on their politics. And certainly the court as a whole shouldn't want that. Of course not. And we've got a few weeks before the, it's really coming quickly, the new term, and a lot of the issues we're going to tackle are going to be politically significant as well. Again, we'll see what happens. Joan Biskupic, thank you so much. Always great to have you here. Look, to a, there's now a new approach to curbing gun violence in America, some are talking about. And it has to do with the financial organizations. Could credit card companies be stepping into the fight? And if they are, will it make a difference? We'll talk about it next. So credit card companies are going to begin tracking sales, something we buy a lot in this country. More than new cars, more than refrigerators, we're talking about guns. Right now, when you use a credit card at all sorts of stores, whether it's a hair salon or a movie theater, something called a merchant category code tracks that purchase. Well, now the international group that manages the codes and sets these codes and determines what they are, it's called the International Organization for Standardization, IOS, and they have approved a code for sales at gun stores. Now, keep in mind, stores like Walmart that sell more than just guns, they have different codes. Here to talk about the political, legal, and practical implications is Paul Begala, Scott Jennings, and Elliot Williams is back with this as well. Gentlemen, I mean, first of all, just to talk about this, this is not tracking everyone's gun sales to have a, a database, but that is the fear people have that by having a corresponding code, you'll know who's buying what, when, and where. Issue? Um... Look. Are you guys quiet right now? <laughs> I said the word gun. I said sale. Uh, I, I was, said I was waiting for Scott Jennings' head to explode. I know. Well, well, there's three lawyers here and me, and I was at a, <laughs> no. I was at a gun range yesterday shooting my guns. And, uh, and right. you know, I don't, look, I, 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 you, you just said it's not going to be a gun registry, and then you said we're going to know who, what, when, where. I mean, how is that I not? said the fear I, is that. Federal law prohibits a gun registry. So, look, let's. Right. So, no, so they went outside Scott, the law. Scott, no, they oh, didn't. And, and intimidated what? the credit okay, card okay, companies. Number, okay, let me say two things. Number one, you're right to purchase uh, all the ammunition that you bought at the gun range. I support it. It's a beautiful thing. It's your right as a citizen, right? Now, look, people ought to be suspicious whenever some tech, tech company or bank gets access to their data. The problem is that there is a framework for tracking suspicious activity. What is the definition? What is the definition of suspicious activity? Let me finish. Human trafficking, okay, um, is is a great example where when an individual uses a credit card to purchase hotel rooms, clothing, fast food, gasoline, and makes a big deposit right after, that's an immediate flag for human trafficking under the law. It's for suspicious, suspicious activity. You could create a similar framework for straw purchases of firearms or mass purchases of firearms. You could do that. Now, I'm with you that, of course, you ought to be suspicious if you're talking about cutting down on folks' lawful conduct. But people also kill citizens with guns. And if someone's going to commit a mass shooting, there ought to be a way to flag a suspicious purchase. I think we agree on this more than you think, hey, The thing you're both missing is it's not the government. 
It's no, corporate yeah. America. The government is constrained by this misreading by the morons of the Supreme Court of the <laughs> Second Amendment. I say this as a gun owner and a responsible gun owner. I want gun safety laws. But this is credit card companies. You were at the gun range. I was at a bar Saturday night in Austin, Texas, Whoa. drowning my sorrows after Alabama squeaked off a win <laughs> against my Longhorns. Credit card company knows that. They ought to know that the animal who murdered over 40 people at the Pulse nightclub in Orlando in 2016 spent $26,000 with a credit card on guns and ammo. We should know that. I'm not saying they should even stop him, although I would have liked to have, but that can send up a flag. There's nothing wrong with that, but it's not the government doing it. It's private business. Private business already knows everything you buy. Is it the when when for you they know it? Because obviously we know about the Orlando Pulse nightclub shooter and many others because of the FBI investigations after the fact and the credit card receipts. But your point is the proactive, the, 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 the knowing it beforehand seems like it is discrimination in some way. Well, who's going to know it? And, and to me, the whole term here that matters is suspicious activity. Because what's suspicious to Elizabeth Warren, who's out banging the drum for this day, is probably less suspicious to <laughs> but me. I'm, but, but I'm literally and saying there is, you can do this. Who? Who can do it? Corporations. Well, you want, you're, you're conflating. I'm sorry, corporations. I, 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 I'm sorry. I think I'm sorry you corporations want... exist to make money. You, they are doing this because they will make money. Uh, see, I, Why? Scott, because they're responding just, to I the market. I want to hear, okay. I want to hear yeah. from all of you. I, I think it's really all important, but finish your point, Paul. Yeah. Corporate America responds to the market, and the market says they want this. And I believe in markets. I'm not a socialist, Scott. You may be. But this is what the market <laughs> You can wants. respond to that And next. it okay, responds Scott. better than the political market because they have things in the politics like the Supreme Court and the filibuster rule your friend Mitch McConnell abuses all the time. They, they have the Oof. imbalance of representation in the Senate. So political markets are, are right now dysfunctional. Thank God economic markets are not. Then that's all they're doing is just trying to maximize profit. If Paul keeps saying out loud he's not a socialist, they're not going to let him into the next Democrat National Convention. That's number one. Number two, here's the deal. To me, this is, this is the new left-wing way to get things done. The reason the government is not doing it is because the people who want this can't convince the Congress to do nonsense. it. That is nonsense. And let me... The re- Congress is no, 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 You talk. Let me talk. Okay. You can't convince the Congress to pay off student debt. Go, oh, you're, go you're convince Joe Biden to break the law. You get mad about what the Supreme Court is or is going to do. Go right out in front of their house. Here, This is the new way to do it. The politics yeah. of intimidation and bullying. And now they've bullied these credit <laughs> card companies into doing this. And all we're going to end up doing is fighting about what is a suspicious purchase? Yes. And they're going to end up inundating police okay. police precincts with thousands okay. of right. pages right, of people like me who went to the I gun spent, range to I shoot his my, 38 special. I, I, I appreciate your passion, my brother, but look, <laughs> I spent my entire career prior to um, this life in law enforcement, right? If someone rents a big U-Haul truck and a lot of fertilizer and, and any other number of, of other materials and uses their credit card, they are going to be flagged for making a suspicious purchase for a terrorist act. You can do that same framework, right. for, and I'm just speaking as a matter of law enforcement, you can do the same thing for mass shootings, straw purchases, and, and other um, um, serious firearm crimes. I'm not talking about lawful citizens or their right to own firearms. But it's not law their... enforcement doing it. Right. It's credit card. But it's they are flagging in, the transaction. It's people sitting in the PR office at the credit card company no. and their, flagging view, the, and their is, view of what suspicious is and what might be vastly it's, different the, the, What I'm saying, Scott, is that there's not a guy at a laptop right. watching and then deciding what's it. What, well, who is what, this? It's an well, algorithm. It's an algorithm. Yeah. Oh, that's, that'll help us. Look, well, <laughs> but it is a... It's a corporation. They're doing it because they, the market wants it. The political market can't act because you guys have broken it. 
But so now the corporate market is acting. That's why they're doing this. Don't and worry. so we'll, t- we'll, take it up with, with, with uh, hundreds of millions we'll, of Americans we'll, we'll, who want some sensible, common sense prevention to keep some animal from shooting up a nightclub. He's not a socialist and he loves markets. We'll invite you to our convention. <laughs> you can come to the GOP convention. On that invitation, I'm just saying, no soup for any of you right now. Let me tell you, <laughs> but let me just say the beauty of this conversation, you guys realize that all, all that's really happened is there is now a code. None of the slippery slope has happened yet, but... It's, this is, this, this is yeah. where we're going with this conversation totally. all across the country. Paul Begala, Scott Jennings, Elliot Williams, and Paul has an invitation to the RNC convention. <laughs> Will he take it? That's up next. Along with news about this whole college ranking system. Hmm, what's going on? Something fishy might be happening. We'll talk about it. For years, the U.S. News and World Report college ranking system has dictated, well, the hierarchy of America's higher education system. But beyond the bragging rights, which we know are always there, does the ranking, does it really mean anything? Here's Education Secretary Miguel Cardona. Too often, our best resource schools are chasing rankings that mean very little on measures that truly count. College completion, economic mobility, narrowing gaps and access to opportunity for all Americans. That system of ranking is a joke. A joke, he says. Well, on Friday, Columbia University admitted that it submitted inaccurate data for last year's ranking. Its ranking has now fallen from second to 18th. I want to have the conversation now with Jeffrey Selingo, who, Selingo, who is a professor at Arizona State University and author of Who Gets In and Why? A Year Inside College Admissions. Jeff, I'm so glad you're here. First of all, is he right? Is the ranking system a joke? Well, the rankings basically confirm what we already think of higher education, right? We already think that the Ivy Leagues are some of the best institutions. What he's really right about is that it measures inputs. It measures the students coming in the door, not the students going out the door. What I really want to know as a tuition-paying parent is, do these kids get jobs, right? Do they lead good lives? That's really what I want to know out of the rankings. And U.S. News and World Report doesn't really measure that at all. So what are they measuring? They're really measuring how much they spend on faculty salaries, how many faculty members per student there are. Uh, Do faculty members have PhDs? By the way, two of the things that Columbia got in trouble about. They're measuring things, volumes in the library. They're measuring things that for most parents and students, they don't think they're really paying for when they go to college. So what did Columbia do wrong? They lied about certain aspects of how they factor in these rankings and then tried to put those forward? Yeah, basically, they self-report most of the data to U.S. News & World Report, and U.S. News & World Report doesn't audit any of this data. What's interesting about this is that if, like, a random school in the middle of nowhere submitted questionable data, U.S. News & World Report would probably be all over it, right, if a school suddenly went from 100 to number 10. But here was Columbia. You know, it's an Ivy League school. Of course it probably should rank in the top 10. And that's part of the problem with the rankings is it really confirms, you know, the schools that we think already rank up at the top. Kind of a self-fulfilling prophecy, the exactly. idea we want that. But I'm asking you, how Columbia can't be the only one to have maybe fudged the numbers. And I, I, I don't mean that every school does that, but just based on what you described, self-reporting, as a prosecutor, I'm not really into the trust system. No, and even indeed, U.S. News also relies on U.S. government data, which also isn't audited. So a lot of these numbers could be wrong. I don't think most institutions are misleading people and putting wrong numbers. There's some mistakes being made. But there were other schools over the years, Temple and Emory and others. But but Columbia is definitely probably the most prestigious 
that has been caught doing this over the years. Well, the prestige notion of it. I mean, this speaks volumes about higher education in general. I mean, if the idea of rankings chasing is the goal, as opposed to the factors you talked about, what happens after that degree, it's a larger political discussion about the value we put on higher education. And also, these schools at the top are tiny, right? You have to go, you basically, the top 20 universities in the U.S. News & World Report rankings educate maybe 150,000 undergraduates out of like, you know, 15, 14, 15 million undergraduates across the country. So they're so tiny, but yet they take up Mm. so much of our time, like right now. A really important conversation. Jeff Zelingo, thank you so much. Thanks for watching. I'll be back tomorrow night. But Don Lemon tonight starts right now, and he's live from London. Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. I'm Dr. Sanjay Gupta, host of the Chasing Life podcast. In honor of our 10th season, we want to hear from you. Leave us a message at 470-396-0832 and tell us how you chase life. It could be used on an upcoming episode.